Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm Frank Bruni. And this is The Argument. ago, I was co-piloting a Black Hawk helicopter over Iraq. A rocket-propelled grenade ripped through our cockpit, and I am only here tonight because of the miracles that followed. Some I can explain, like the bravery of my crew, determined not to leave me behind. Some I can't like the shrapnel from the explosion passing through the spinning rotor blades without destroying them, allowing us to land. What I do know is that I started that day doing what I loved. I ended it knocked down, surviving only because my buddies refused to leave me and wouldn't stop, even as they struggled to carry my body with its missing limbs. Senator Tammy Duckworth is a fighter and a trailblazer. She became an Army helicopter pilot and flew combat missions in Iraq, where she lost both legs and earned a Purple Heart. Determined to continue serving her country back home, she won election to Congress, where she spent four years in the House and then the past four years in the Senate. A working mom, she's the first senator to give birth while in office and the first to bring her baby to the Senate floor for a vote. That combination of grit and relatability landed her on the list of women whom Joe Biden is seriously considering as he nears his choice of a running mate. But what put her even more squarely in the spotlight was a recent interview with CNN's Dana Bash, or rather, the reaction to it. In your view, where does it end? Should statues, for example, of George Washington come down? Well, let me just say that we should start off by having a national dialogue on it um, at some point. But right now we're in the middle of a global pandemic and our one of our ally, one of our um, uh, countries that are opposed to us, Russia, has put a bounty on American troops heads. What really struck me about the speech that the president gave at Mount Rushmore was that he spent more time uh, worried about uh, honoring dead Confederates than he did talking about the lives of our American, the 130,000 Americans who lost their lives to COVID-19 or um, by warning Russia off of the bounty they're putting on Americans' heads. I mean, his, his priorities are all wrong here. Right away, Fox News' Tucker Carlson leapt at an opportunity. George Washington was a genuinely great man. But to morons like Tammy Duckworth, Washington is just some old white guy who needs to be erased. Keep in mind, Tammy Duckworth is not a child, at least not technically. She is a sitting United States senator who is often described as a hero. Yet Duckworth is too afraid to defend her own statements on a cable TV show. What a coward. Then Carlson upped the ante even further by suggesting that Duckworth hates America. She responded in an op-ed in The Times titled, Tucker Carlson doesn't know what patriotism is. She wrote, 
Attacks from self-serving, insecure men who can't tell the difference between true patriotism and hateful nationalism will never diminish my love for this country or my willingness to sacrifice for it so they don't have to. These titanium legs don't buckle. She joins us here today. Senator Duckworth, thank you so much for coming on the argument. It's my pleasure to be on. Thank you. Hi, Senator. Hi, Senator Duckworth. Senator, I'm, I'm betting that when you entered politics, you braced yourself for all sorts of attacks and being called all kinds of names. But did you think your patriotism would be the thing in the foreground and that it would be attacked not just by right wing pundits, but by the president himself in a campaign statement? No, I mean, back in 2006, when I ran for the first time, I was literally uh, fresh out of Walter Reed, and it never occurred to me that anyone would ever question my love of my nation or or my sacrifices for this nation, let alone the commander-in-chief. So, yes, it's been a surprise, but unfortunately, it's um, nothing new at this point. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Well, it's the same attack that comes up. Uh, I feel like it's, uh, um, you know, it's, it's the go after your opponent's strongest points and try to tear it down. Um, and, but it has never worked. Uh, Joe Walsh tried it. It didn't work for him. Um, uh, um, the guy who ran against me after him, Larry something or other, didn't work for him either. And, you know, it certainly didn't work for Tucker Carlson. It didn't work for Mark Kirk. I, uh, I beat Mark Kirk by 14 points. So they feel, I, you know, I feel like they, this is in the playbook, but they should learn from experience that it just doesn't work. Americans just would rather you be talking about the issues and they don't fall for this line. Senator, obviously you're a decorated military veteran, and on the subject of the military, you've been understandably outraged by the idea first reported in the New York Times that Russia was putting bounties on American troops in Afghanistan and that the president knew about it and did nothing. How do you make sense of the president's attitude about this? Are observers who wonder if he's somehow beholden to or bewitched by Vladimir Putin asking a question that's crossed your mind as well? Well, I mean, it's been more than two weeks since this Russian bounty story broke and President Trump has done absolutely nothing to condemn Vladimir Putin or put him on notice. I, I mean, this this is supposedly our America first president, yet he's literally placing Russian interests ahead of American lives. I, I think our troops deserve to know what is being done to protect them and why their commander in chief has failed to take actions. Uh, it's why I've asked for a hearing in the Senate Armed Services Committee, and I've called on DOD to investigate recent deaths of our troops in Afghanistan to see if they're connected to the bounty operation. But wh- why do you think he's taken no action? I don't know. I can't imagine why he would take no action. Um, I, I do think that he has uh, always put Russia's interests uh, first from from his words, and and you know he has said that he. Uh, believe Putin uh, over the uh, reports from his own intelligence community. Um, it's why I think that uh, we need to have a hearing in the Senate Armed Services Committee, and it's why I think DOD needs to investigate whether or not the deaths of our troops in Afghanistan have been linked to this bounty operation. Senator, hey, it's Ross Douthat. Um, thanks, thanks for joining us. Um, just a follow up on this on the Russian bounty issue for. For those of us who think the U.S. has been in Afghanistan for way too long, the bounty story seems a little bit convenient. Not that it's necessarily false, but there's a sense that maybe it was leaked in an effort to actually impede the withdrawal of U.S. troops that, of course, in his in his way, President Trump has been pushing. Do you think this story has implications for the U.S. presence in Afghanistan generally, for Afghanistan policy? 
don't know if it if it does. I just need to know more about it. It's why I've I've asked for the hearing. Um, we had the one briefing in the uh, secure briefing room, and the people that they send to brief us had no information. They didn't let the commander of the U.S. troops in Afghanistan, for example, speak to us. I think whatever we do in Afghanistan, it needs to be done in a competent way and, and uh, with a real understanding of what that off-ramp looks like. Uh, I think that our troops have sacrificed uh, time and again whenever we've called on them to serve. And I think our Gold Star families deserve to know if their loved ones were killed um, uh, by someone that the president thinks is a good guy, um, you know, by a bounty program uh, set forward by Vladimir Putin. You know, I, I think that we need to have a healthy discussion on what we do in Afghanistan, but we also need to have an in-depth uh, investigation into this bounty operation itself. Can, can I ask what what do you think a reasonable response? Suppose the story suppose the story is true. What do you think a reasonable U.S. response would be to something like this? Well, first and foremost, the commander in chief needs to step, come right out, and do several things. One, he needs to reach out to the Gold Star families and reassure him that he's doing everything he can to uh, to address the issue. He needs to call Vladimir Putin, put him on notice, and he's not done that. And then I think he needs to work with the legislative branch and see what else we can do in terms of sanctions and, and other actions. But he needs to develop some proposals, and he's not done any of that. And in fact, uh, um, it seems that he was brief on this issue and didn't think it was important enough to pay attention to. Can I just, I'm just going to circle back to where to where we started and the great Tucker Carlson controversy for a minute. Um, and I just I just want to ask you a little bit more about the things that Carlson was attacking you over, because, of course, we have a debate about monuments playing out all over the country. We've had the argument on this show. And I think one of the questions for your party, for the institutional Democratic Party, is how far it wants to go with activists. And one of the reasons your comments attracted so much attention was that they seemed at least to go further than, say, Joe Biden has been willing to go towards dialogue about potentially taking down founding father monuments, and even towards the idea that, say, a president shouldn't give a speech on land taken from Native Americans, which might preclude giving presidential speeches in Manhattan. I'm just curious, do you think there are risks for yourself politically, but also for your party, if the conversations you're having are shaped by a faction in the party that seems pretty comfortable with iconoclasm towards the American founding? Well, let me make something clear. I do not support the tearing down of monuments to the men and women who founded our country and the ideals on which this country was founded. Uh, I do think we need to look at uh, renaming all military bases named for traitors who raised arms against our union. Uh, and everything else that came out of that uh, was Tucker Carlson doing what Tucker Carlson and the folks who support President Trump or what President Trump wants to do, which is to divert Americans' attention away from the real problems we have right now, the 135,000 dead Americans because of a pandemic that this president did not properly respond to, of the bounties that supposedly have been placed on American troops' heads, of an economy that continues to uh, be in free fall because of the botched response to that, the pandemic and the botched reopening of some of our states. They want to distract us from the real issues that working families in this country are struggling with right now by by throwing out this other conversation. And I think that you know, as, a, as a nation, we should let everyone speak their mind. But that doesn't mean that uh, we need to uh, have a whole 
wholesale refocusing of our national dialogue away from how do we overcome this pandemic? There are folks who who do this time and time again. They they try to divert the public's attention, and we just can't let that. We just can't let that um, work. And that's why when I wrote my op-ed, I tried to refocus people back on the issues at hand. But there is a real difference between the imperfect, flawed individuals who helped found our nation and the folks who actually were traitors and took up arms against our nation. Absolutely. But just to follow up, last question. I think the reason the interview attracted attention, and not only from Tucker Carlson, was that it seemed to be a case of a very prominent Democratic politician, perhaps a vice presidential contender, sort of breaking down that distinction. I'm just going to sharpen the question. Do you think it's okay for U.S. politicians to give speeches at Mount Rushmore? Yes, I, I do think so. But I do think we should have a national dialogue and a discussion, and we should be teaching that Mount Rushmore was built on a place that was stolen from Native Americans after they were given that land uh, in a treaty. Our history should be whole that we should be talking about what a great American George Washington was, but that he did also own slaves, right? We can't just teach half of our history without talking about the mistakes that we've made in the past so that we don't repeat those mistakes into the future. Um, Senator Duckworth, I want to follow up a little bit on Ross's question about the kind of leftward momentum in the Democratic Party. I believe you have not signed on to Medicare for all legislation And I'm curious if you're rethinking that in light of the pandemic. The New York Times had a story yesterday that 5.4 million people lost their health insurance between February and May. We have the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression and a pandemic where you're going to have millions of people with long-term health problems and trouble getting access to care. Well, I support a public option on the exchange, um, which would include health insurance for people um, under a certain income level, that you would actually have access to uh, Medicare or Medicaid at a certain level, but that there should be a public option on the exchange that people, an affordable option that people can sign up for. Um, And then if you want additional health insurance beyond that, that should be your freedom of choice that you should be able to, to do those things. I've gotten great care. Um, uh, from the VA, and I've gotten great care from the Department of the Army. Um, and so I am comfortable with the health care that I receive. In fact, I still go to the VA as my primary source of health care. I will tell you that when I travel across my state, and whether I am in blue counties or red counties, uh, what people indicate to me that they want is a Medicare buy-in for 50, 55-year-olds and older, uh, a public option on the exchange, and that they want to have the choice of buying additional insurance if they want to, but that there should be some basic level of health care that you're not shut out of just because, you know, you are lower income so that a child should be able to go to the dentist so that someone should be able to afford their cholesterol medication. Those things should be available. And I think you can do that with a public option on the exchange that is made available um, uh, to the folks that are below a certain income level and then others can buy into it if they would choose to. So sometimes I think people forget that the reason we don't have a public option in the first place is because what it took to get to 60 votes um, in the Senate to pass the ACA in the first place. And given that we're not likely to have 60 Democrats, even in the best case scenario of the 2020 election, and given that we're likely to run into a wall of kind of total 
political nihilism by Republicans, do you think it's time to get rid of the filibuster to be able to deliver on any of these promises? Well, I think that, you know, that's a conversation that we have been having in the Senate, both among Democrats and Republicans. I know in the Democratic caucus, we've had many conversations about it. I don't know how we return to where things were before both Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell decided to do the various versions of the nuclear option. I, I do think that it is pretty harmful when um, when certain laws pass with a simple majority, because then folks in the minority don't have their voice. And our system is set up so that those in the minority should have a voice. But the question then is, should those folks have the, you know, the ultimate blockage to keep the, the majority from from moving forward? So I, I don't know where we are on that yet. I think we, we continue to have those conversations. Um, I would hope that we could get to. Uh, a 60 vote margin in the Senate, but I've only been in the Senate since the um, uh, the nuclear option had been invoked by both sides. But what prospect is there to pass any progressive legislation or not even progressive legislation, but just legislation to address the national emergency that we're in if you still basically have Mitch McConnell with a veto over everything? Right. Well, let me tell you that um, that's where the problem is, right? It's not the lack of the 60 votes. It's Mitch McConnell. It's one man. I think that if you were to bring certain things to the floor um, and had senators vote on them, they would actually pass. And the reason that Mitch McConnell, one person, is not allowing them to come to the floor, and before him it was Speaker Ryan and Speaker Boehner when I was in the House, is because they knew it would pass. I'll give you an example. Universal background checks. Closing the background check loophole was something that there were more than enough votes in the House to pass because there were Republicans, I think at the time when I was there, 28 Republicans who would sign on to it. Um, so Speaker Boehner and then Speaker Ryan after him did not bring that to the floor for a vote because they knew that it would pass. Uh, so it's not about whether or not you can get to the 60 votes. I think that Medicare buy-in, you know, if you Medicare buy-in for 50 or 55-year-olds is something that is very popular. When I go wait, into- so you re- who are the re- who are the Republicans that would be left that you could imagine voting for something like that? The universal background checks? No, no, the public option. The public option? I well, I what I'm saying is I think that there are Republicans who would have to think long and hard about voting yes. So when I go into Southern Illinois in places where there were Trump Duckworth voters, where I, you know, I won by six points and Hillary lost by 20. Um, when I talk to those folks, they want to be able to buy into Medicare for 50 year olds. And usually I say, you know, I think that we should have Medicare buy in for 55 year olds. And there's always someone in the audience to say, oh, make it 50, please. And so I think that uh, if you had something like that, Republicans would have to vote for it because that's where their constituency is. Working families in this country are struggling. Farmers are struggling. Families can't make ends meet. And, and to be able to buy into Medicare is something that I have seen in my own home state is something that people truly support. Um, and I think that if that were allowed to be voted on, you would get the 60 votes. Uh, you'd come pretty darn close to it. But Mitch McConnell will not let us vote on these things because he knows, he knows that there's a real possibility that they will pass. Just as they have Republicans in both the House and the Senate have time and again not allow a vote on universal background check because it is actually supported by 95% of all Americans. So one of the reasons that you are you know, widely reported to be in consideration as a vice president. Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of them is the existence of Trump Duckworth voters, right? That you appeal to a constituency that maybe Elizabeth Warren or some of the other contenders don't. And well, I'm curious, first of all, like why, why would anyone want to 
be vice president? And what do you actually do when you're being vetted for vice president? (laughs) I want Joe Biden to be the president of the United States because he is between him and Trump. He is the guy the leader that we need that's going to lead us out of the multiple crisis. Right, of course. That, so whatever it is that he thinks I can do to help him in that process, to get him elected and to ha- for him to be able to address the crises, I will do. I'm a team player. Look, I, I, I've always been part of a team my entire adult life. You know, that's what I did in the army. And if the, the commander comes in and says, you, I need you to be the S3, I need you to be the XO, I need you to, you know, then then you execute your job and you and you get the mission done. So... Whatever it is that I can do to help Joe Biden be elected and be successful once his administration is in place, I am willing to do that because it's about my nation recovering. My nation is hurting right now. Americans are suffering wounds that they should not be suffering with with this pandemic, with our economy. Uh, we are divided as a nation on many issues that have to do with police violence, with have to be with racial injustice, with have to do with the environment. And we need our wounds bound. And Joe Biden is the man with the resilience and the capability to lead us out of that. Donald Trump is not. So whatever I need to do to help that process, I will do. I have the job that I love. I'm a United States senator. No one is more surprised than me when I get up and you realize, holy cow, I'm a United States senator. You know, just a little while ago, I was just a Black Hawk helicopter pilot, you know, and and, and here I am. And, and But because I've been entrusted with this job by the people of Illinois, I'm going to do the job the best that I can. And it's always about the health and well-being and the strength of my nation that I will defend until my dying day. And if that means that Joe Biden says, Tammy, you're the vice president, then I will smartly salute and say and execute my mission. Um, but if he's, it's not and he says, Tammy Duckworth, your best thing that you can do for your nation is to go sweep floors in a VA hospital, then I will go sweep floors in a VA hospital because it's about what I can do to serve. So you are one of the few senators, um, female senators with little kids. I mean, I have to think that if there was more parents of little kids, there would be more attention to how what we're going to do about education in the fall. Yeah. What are your thoughts right now about reopening the schools? And I mean, you have a pretty important job. <laughs> like, what, what are you going to do about your kids in the fall? Well, this is the issue. I'm, I'm, I'm having this conversation right now. I was my daughter, my five year old. Abigail is supposed to be uh, going to kindergarten, um, you know, and I want schools to reopen as much as any other parent. But, you know, Secretary DeVos's claim that because other countries have successfully reopened, we should be able to, I think, is delusional. Um, the t- fact is, this administration has failed to get a handle on this pandemic, and there's no one size fit all a solution as cases are spiking across the nation. So the options that my daughter is facing, that I and my husband are facing for my five-year-old is school two days a week in person, two days online, or school full-time online. And I'm the one that's doing the online education with her. I have to go back. You're the one, even though you're a senator? I am. I am. Yeah. So (laughs) how is that going? A lot of tears and I don't want to do it. And that's just me. (laughs) You know, so no, it's hard. So what is harder, homeschooling a five year old or flying a Black Hawk helicopter? Homeschooling a five year old because I'm not trained to do it. I'm not a trained educator. I was trained. I spent a year learning how to fly a helicopter. And and, and, and every year I was I got check rides and, and, and practiced my skills. I'm not a teacher. I don't have the skills of a teacher. 
And so I am inadequate as a teacher for my daughter. I'm doing the best that I can. But I will tell you, it's incredibly frustrating, but frustrating I can handle. It's scary because I think, oh, my God, she's not going to be ready. She can't read. She's forgotten her ABCs. She doesn't know what, what letter makes the sound the. She doesn't know the difference between a W and a, and a V. What do I do? Oh, my God, I think she might be dyslexic. She's writing her numbers backwards. All of those things. And I'm someone in a position of of privilege compared to most working families, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine if you were the single mom who works at McDonald's supplying my daughter with the nuggets that sometimes that's how she will eat. <laughs> and what do you what do you do with your eight-year-old? Do you leave them at home and, and there's no homeschooling? They can't go to school? You know, this is this is really scary. It's why we have to focus on the fact that we need child care in this country. It is unaffordable. People have to go to work while their family members are sick. They have to risk exposure to the virus. Uh, we don't have paid family leave policies in this country. Um, and it's why I believe so strongly that we have to work on finding a solution to child care. We are a developed nation. And for us to not have child care um, in this country really is it's, it's, it's a broken promise to our working families. But it also is slowing down our economy. If we want to be competitive on a global scale, we need to figure this part out because we're failing at it. But so if there's if there's school two days a week, mm -hmm. you'll send your daughter? I will send my daughter. I think that she needs it. Again, looking at all the precautions, I've been on multiple Zoom conference calls with her principal and this right is, now to see how they're going to do it. And this is in Illinois? It's a county. To, it's a public school. Yeah. This is a public No, I have my daughter here with me in Virginia because okay. we're sheltering in place. Because I have to go in to vote. Right. So I couldn't, I couldn't leave my, my family in Illinois and me here and then be isolated from them. So we are all hunkered down together, including my 79-year-old mom, who um, normally would not be with us right now, but she's hunkered down. So we have all um, hunkered down in one location together. And it's, a lot of it is surrounded around my being able to go in to vote because I have to physically be able to go in to vote. And I did not want to be separated from my children. And I didn't want my mom to be off by herself um, with no one to take care of her if she were to get sick. So we are a multi-generational family and I'm your typical Gen Xer trying to deal with it all. <laughs> well, this is a very Gen X friendly podcast, Senator. So <laughs> it is. you should know. Excellent. So they know what I'm going through because they're going through it too. <laughs> yes, we are definitely going through it. Senator, I want to pull back, if, if I may, and ask you a sort of more macro cosmic question, which is, I mean, you talked moments ago about how much this nation is hurting and how damaged it's been. What happens to us? What happens to America if Donald Trump gets four more years? Oh, my gosh. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm terrified that that happens because what it means for an institution like the military that I love that will be even further politicized. Um, the fact that he can't find enough people to work in his administration. So there's just an overall lack of competence the downward slide uh, that's happening with our economy, with our healthcare system. I think we're in real trouble if Donald Trump gets another four years, which is why I'm working so hard to get Joe Biden elected. Um, it's not even about party. It's about what this country needs. And, you know, I've spent my whole life defending this nation. But right now, defending this nation and serving her is more about what's happening here on our home, on, on our soil, on our native soil, than it is about foreign enemies Senator, we are unfortunately out of time, but thank you so much for coming on the program. Yes. Thank you, Senator. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for letting me on. And um, 
Everybody go home and take care of your multi-generational families. (laughs) (laughs) You do the same, Senator. Thank you. Take care. Okay, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. And we're back. Michelle Ross, I think that was the first time um, that either or both of you spoke with Senator Duckworth. I'm curious for your impressions about what she said. Look, she's obviously, you know, extremely charming, charismatic. But I have to tell you, the thing that really struck me is that she is a United States senator. She is in contention to be the vice president of the United States, and she is still doing most of the homeschooling. That is bananas. (laughs) I think that says a lot about gender roles in society. I also think, interestingly, that is one of the reasons why the Biden camp is so intrigued with her as a choice, because she is someone um, who's who's living an, a recognizable life for a lot of Americans and is not. I mean, let's face it, a lot of the men and women in the Senate um, exist at a fairly high economic altitude and do not know the price of a quart of milk. I think what you heard there is someone who's saying, hey, I know the price of a quart of milk. I have literally just been Googling Tammy Duckworth's husband to learn more about the man on whom we should all throw shade <laughs> after this, after, after this, after this, after this in, in Brian Bowlesby's defense, who I don't know anything about, <laughs> she's actually not the first female United States senator I've spoken to who is doing the majority of the child care. And we don't, in fairness, we don't know that she's doing the majority of the child care. We right. just that know is true. that she Let's is. Let's not presume to, we know we, too much about Brian, Brian Bowlesby may be doing all the dishes <laughs> in the background while... Tammy Duckworth is doing doing the Zoom <laughs> education. I mean, I will say that we have a four year old who allegedly had Zoom school, and we and we gave up on it. Now maybe it's easier for for five year olds, but I feel like just sticking with Zoom with a five year old is itself a qualification for the vice presidency. <laughs> on a more maybe not more serious but more political note, what's been striking about the whole thing with her and her cable news comments and Tucker Carlson attacks and her op-ed for us is that she's an odd figure to get into this kind of blow up. Because as you could tell, I think from our conversation, she presents as a kind of middle of the road, Trump Duckworth voter, safe choice to be vice president kind of figure. Um, And so I was surprised that she was the main Democrat to sort of accidentally wander into the wrong set of talking points on, you know, monuments and Mount Rushmore and that, you know, it it seemed like she had, well, it seemed striking as a case study of how much the kind of activist mentality has penetrated into the subconscious of democratic politicians, where if you're a politician, you always have this sort of, 
you know, these sort of words floating around in your heads that you're going to pull out when <laughs> someone on cable news asks you a controversial question. And in her case, the words were Native American lands and let's have a conversation about about George Washington. And I don't think those are the right words for the general election. I don't know. I'm curious what you guys think. Do you think this whole thing has helped her candidacy for for Veep because she got in a fight with Tucker Carlson? And yes. Or do you think it hurts her because the fight started in the first place? No, I, th- I mean, I think it helps her because she got in a fight with Tucker Carlson and was so sharp in her rejoinder to him that sort of people aren't going to necessarily remember that it began with um, a set of possibly ill-advised or garbled talking. You don't think anyone in the sort of a, Biden campaign is going to I also that? just I also just fundamentally don't think that this election is going to be about monuments as much as um, Donald Trump is trying to is, is trying to make it so right. Like nobody believes that Joe Biden is going to dynamite Mount Rushmore. Um, <laughs> and so it to me, it just seems like a fairly obscure, you know, it's like a fairly small culture war landmine that got her into this scrape that will, I think, ultimately redound to her benefit. So I don't I mean, I don't think the election is going to be about monuments either. And in that sense, I I guess I agree with her deliberately evasive answer to me. Right. That Americans are right now care about the economy and the pandemic much more than they care about the culture war. I just think it's, you know, the case for Tammy Duckworth, which uh, Frank, you know, made very eloquently on this very podcast um, a month or so ago, is that she's the candidate you pick if you're trying if you're trying to minimize fears that in picking a vice president, Biden is picking a successor who will lead the Democratic Party in the country dramatically to the left. And that's not who Tammy Duckworth is. But the fact that she got into this fight, I I don't think it helps with that brand identity. But I could be wrong. What did you think of her, Frank? I think you're wrong that she ended up in a bad place because I think, well, her initial answers on CNN State of the Union to Dana Bash were, I think, evasive in a way that didn't help her. I think Tucker Carlson did her an enormous favor. Uh, in a weird sense, if I may word it that way, because he 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 went so over the top. He went he was so offensive, so revoltingly so. And she right away uh, with tweets and then with that op ed in The Times, he opened the door for her to be very, very eloquent, poised and emphatic. And I think that ended up erasing what happened before. Now, I should rush in, though, and say as someone who has argued that I think should be a great Veep pick, and my my feeling about that hasn't changed in terms of constructing a winning ticket. I don't think she will be picked at the end of the day. Um, I think right now there's a lot about this moment, I think, that is going to incline um, Joe Biden not just to pick a woman of color, which is, is a category Tammy Duckworth is in as a Thai American, but to pick a black woman. And I also think there's this noise out there, which we should address quickly about, um, is Tammy Duckworth eligible to become president? I'm constantly getting emails from readers um, about that. And if she's not eligible to be be president, should she, uh, is she a sensible vice presidential pick? And that comes from the fact that she was born in Bangkok. The Constitution says 
that the president must be a natural born citizen, but it does not say native born. Uh, by my reading of the kind of overwhelming majority of legal scholarship here. I mean, we already went through this with John McCain, right? Well, it's a little different with John McCain because I think he was born in Panama, but in U.S. territory in Panama. We went through it with Ted Cruz, actually, in 2016. Because he's born in Canada, right? Canada to a U.S. citizen. The just Canadian as, menace. Right. Just as Tammy was born in Thailand, Mitt Romney's dad, who ran for president, George Romney, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Ross, but not, not that you're the Romney archival historian, but I think George Romney was born, he was in, born Mexico. in Mexico, right? Yeah. And the understanding has been that the Constitution, again, doesn't say native born. It says natural born. Under very, na- very interesting circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> and you're a natural born citizen if you don't require naturalization later to become a citizen. My point is uh, the Biden campaign is well aware uh, that Republicans and Trump will make a lot of noise around this. I don't think it's noise they particularly want to have. And layered onto other things, I think it still makes Tammy Duckworth, Senator Tammy Duckworth, a long shot to be picked. I don't know. Do you guys think she has a better chance than, than, uh, than I do? Sure. I think she has a, I mean, I think she has a chance. I think like you, I think, I think that she's a long shot, you know, given the sort of scale of the disaster facing the United States, um, they would be wise to choose somebody with, you know, and this is going to sound probably fairly like a um, subtle plug for Elizabeth Warren, but there's other people who who fit this description, you know, who have really sort of bold and sweeping ideas about immediate administrative action that can be taken to, you know, save an economy and a country that's sort of falling into a black hole. Right. I mean, it seems like there are, without rehearsing our whole discussion about this, there are sort of three things that a vice president does at this moment. One is help Biden win the election. The second is what Michelle just said, be sort of prepared to be a policy leader at a moment that's going to require policy. And the third is be the person who determines in a way that Joe Biden isn't the future direction of American liberalism, which is, I think, how the choice is going to be read, not just during this election, but if Biden is, is becomes president, his vice president will become a sort of both an avatar and a target in a way that most vice presidents don't become until like the end of the second of a president's second term. Um, And, you know, I, I think, I think Duckworth is, is a really good choice for sort of point a and a much more uncertain choice for, for the other two. And, you know, Warren, Warren gives you an answer for Warren gives you policy chops and answer and gives you an answer for part three. Um, but is, is a more, I think, uncertain choice for the election itself. But I, I will say again, since it's my job to stress this point, I think going on television at a moment, like at a moment like this one, when the democratic party is trying to beat Donald Trump and is also trying not to be captured by activists who are tearing down not just statues of slaveholders, but statues in general, going on television and not just saying, well, of course, we want to leave statues of George Washington up. I think it is a strike against you, no matter how much the subsequent Tucker Carlson stuff enabled her to sort of talk about her patriotism. I still think if I were sitting in Joe Biden's shop thinking about, well, this person's going to be on the trail for months and is going to be answering a million questions, it would make me a little more skeptical of picking her. 
One of the reasons we all think Kamala Harris will get it, and one of the reasons she probably will, is it is always reassuring to a campaign and to a candidate to have someone who presumably has been vetted very fairly thoroughly by the public by dint of the profile they already have. And there's always this feeling about someone who is who has run in the primary, who's already been uh, on the national trail. There's a, there's a feeling, um, somewhat justified, sometimes a little bit premature, that they have been vetted by that and are safer as a result of it. Well, I think that's right. And I think I, I don't know where I read this, but I I believe that I've read that the Biden campaign has been leaning towards people who've already run for president. Um, for and exactly that's why that Jimmy that's why Jimmy Carter is going to be his running mate. <laughs> Tested, rested, ready. All right. Well, maybe we've reached the logical conclusion of our Veep Steak speculation um, and we should turn to. Our conclusion, where Frank this week is going to give us a recommendation. Frank, what do you have? Um, I have an album, and I'm going out on a limb. I usually don't like to recommend music because people's musical tastes are so disparate, and it's hard to find something that you can feel a great variety of people will like. But since it came out 11 months ago, I have never stopped listening to Lana Del Rey's most recent album, the album's title is Norman fucking Rockwell. I'm not sure what the expletive is doing in the title, but I tell you, I think it's a modern masterpiece of an album. It's both retro and modern. I have played tracks from it for my father, who's a Frank Sinatra fan and who loves it. And yet Lana Del Rey is the favorite of my uh, college senior niece, Erica. And I can't think of a single other musician that would be able to bridge that divide. And I just think it's an album of uh, exquisite craftsmanship uh, really inventive lyrics. I don't know many songwriters who are rhyming confusion and collusion or uh, context and complex, or my favorite, um, Sylvia Plath and Sociopath. Um, <laughs> but all of that is on Norman fucking Rockwell. What's your favorite song, Frank? I, I have I have listened to it. I, I have both uh, Norman bleeping Rockwell and Ultraviolence, which was 2014. And she's really distinctive. Um, she, it's like, you know, a little of that, like 1940s, um, you know, singer at a lounge in a film noir or something. Um, I don't, I don't adore it. I guess I, I like it without <gasps> like coming back to it. Um, but I'm also, I use, it's, it's for me, I listen to music like while I write and, so probably my appreciation of songs is warped in some way by which makes good background noise for writing intense columns about cancel culture, which, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe torch songs aren't the right thing. But anyway, so what's, what is your, what is your favorite song on the album, Frank, so that I can go listen to it when I, I, I am a total is it Mariner's apartment complex. Clip. That's the one everyone. Well, sings. that's that. That's my second favorite. I think that's the most hummable, tuneful one. But I am a total sap for the incredibly histrionic album closer with its incredibly long title, which she spells in lowercase in a bit of affectation I could have done without. But it's called Hope is a Dangerous Thing for a Woman Like Me to Have, But I Have It. Because hope is a dangerous thing for a woman like me to have. Hope. Is a dangerous thing 
It's lyrically extremely inventive. It makes allusions not just to Sylvia Plath, whom I mentioned before, but to Slim Aarons. Um, and it's a beautiful piece of singing, and, and it has almost zero piano accompaniment. It's close to a cappella. When you sing a song with that little instrumental cushioning, um, you're, really, uh, you're really believing in yourself. All right. Well, that is the one that I will go listen to as inspiration for my next column. So, Frank, again, what is the recommendation? The recommendation is the most recent Lana Del Rey album, Norman fucking Rockwell. Great, Frank. Hope is a dangerous thing for a columnist to have. (laughs) And that's our show (laughs) this week. Thank you for listening. If you have a question you want to hear us debate, share it with us in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. The Argument is a production of the New York Times opinion section. The team includes Phoebe Lett, Lauren Kelly, Paula Schumann, and Pedro Rafael Rosado. Special thanks to Brad Fisher and Kristen Lynn. We'll see you next week. The title of it is actually Norman with an expletive in the middle of Rockwell for people who are Googling it or looking for it. I think, Um, Frank, we're allowed to swear on the podcast. This isn't the Times Opinion page. (laughs) We don't have standards here.